We live in a world plagued by pornography, and people are looking for help. When an individual struggles with pornography, they often turn to their church leader for that help. How does a leader help a person overcome the shame of this issue and start seeing positive progress? How can a leader help youth to open up about struggles with pornography? What are some lasting, proven tactics that actually make a difference? In order to help, Leading Saints has created the Liberating Saints Library with more than 20 presentations featuring individuals who have a unique perspective or expertise around this topic. Three of those most popular sessions are available to watch now. Simply text the word LEAD to 474747 to start watching now or visit leadingsaints.org liberating. The following episode is a throwback episode, one that was published previously and was extremely popular. To see the details of when this was originally published, see the show notes. Enjoy this throwback episode. This is Kurt Frankum. Now, every bishop's been there, and maybe even some Relief Society presidents. You're sitting in a class or maybe in sacrament meeting, and somebody says something, and you think to yourself, hmm, I don't know if that's doctrine. Or you may have somebody approach you after the class and say, I don't really like that instructor because they teach false doctrine. And this is a concept, a part of our culture that obviously is important. There are certain doctrines and truths about the gospel that we need to learn about and obviously seek the principles that are contained in those doctrines, and then obviously apply those principles in our life. But sometimes I think there is a general misunderstanding about what doctrine is, how it's defined, and then what the role of doctrine is in our week-to-week Sunday, you know, organized experiences. And so I learned more about this concept of doctrine from Professor Anthony Sweat, who's in the religion department down at BYU. And I experienced some of his teachings at the Education Week, BYU Education Week, the last two years. And he talks about this concept of doctrine. And then this year, he also talked about ambiguity that is sometimes found in doctrine, which at first caught me off guard because I didn't think there should be any ambiguity in doctrine. The way he articulates and teaches, I think, will be a help to all leaders out there striving to organize wards or quorums or groups in a way where Doctrine is consistently taught, but more importantly, doctrine is consistently understood. So I think you'll really benefit from this interview. Uh, You'll definitely want to take notes, maybe listen to it once through, let the information wash over you, and then go back and maybe take some notes and see if you can better understand his teachings. So here's my interview with Professor Anthony Sweat. Today, I have the opportunity to be on the Brigham Young University campus in the office of Anthony Sweat. How are you? Great. So happy to be with you. You know, I've been looking forward to this interview. I've been to Education Week last few years and uh, 
you're one of I'm one of your fanboys. Okay, I, I don't miss an Anthony Sweat lecture. Don't tell my wife that she'll laugh to hear I have a fanboy. <laughs> nice. And they even put you in the Marriott Center this year, so yeah, I didn't have to worry about like elbowing old ladies for, yeah, for a seat. That's, you know? that's where they send everybody who can talk while people eat lunch. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, because you can't have food there. So, so give us a background. What does the audience, maybe if they're not familiar with you, what do they need to know about Anthony Sweat? I am a uh, assistant professor of church history and doctrine here at BYU. I mainly center in teaching the course, The Foundations of the Restoration, Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Smith, Church History. Published a few books, a handful of books that mainly center around church doctrine and other devotional subjects. Published one like on the Temple Endowment just recently. And I taught for seminaries and institutes of religion for 13 years while I got my graduate degrees and loved that. And uh, after I finished there, came here to BYU and I've been here a number of years now. Nice. And you sort of have a unique journey to the religion department, I would say, maybe, yeah. maybe not, but you uh, majored in, in fine art. Is that right? I did. My bachelor's degree was in fine art and painting and drawing. My original plans were to be a full-time painter. And so I went to the University of Utah and was trained as a, as a fine artist. And the Lord, through a lot of different experiences, let me know that was not his plans for my career. So I joke that he led me into the big money of religious education. <laughs> Uh, instead of the big money of fine art. And the fun thing about it though, is I still get to use, yeah. like all things, it's interesting to see the Lord work things in your life. When I left fine art to become a religious educator, a professional religious educator, I wasn't sure how my art would tie in. But now, you know, 20 years later, uh, one of the things I do is I paint scenes of the restoration that have, that are important that have never been painted before. So yeah, they're kind of tied back together. That's cool. And there's a lot of scenes that I mean, we see a lot of church history scenes, but you found a lot of pivotal ones. Yeah, that, uh, they're surprising. There's more than people think that are pivotal, important scenes that have never been visually yeah. shown before. So do you approach that from obviously <laughs> there's a business behind everything. So you think, well, if I paint this scene, uh, it'll show up in more ward libraries <laughs> or what's your approach of finding these scenes and, and what motivates you to? My to approach is I am a terrible businessman. <laughs> business is not the motivation for me, nor is even like. I'm not out to make a pretty like mantelpiece or something that somebody's going to hang in their front room. I want, my art is about people learning. And so some of the paintings I do are kind of uncomfortable to be totally honest. You know, I just did a painting of Joseph and Emma arguing after Joseph Smith wrote the revelation, which is section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants for plural marriage. Oh, wow. And when Joseph brought it home, you know, by some accounts, William Clayton said that Emma threw it in the fire. And for the next three or four days, they argue heavily. Mm. So I did a painting of Joseph and Emma sitting in front of a burning fire, kind of symbolic there, you know, while Joseph holds this revelation and Emma looks at him hurt and angry at the same time. Yeah. That's not something someone's going to hang in their ward library <laughs> uh, or over their mantelpiece. But yeah. to me, it opens an important historical discussion yeah. to help people learn. So yeah. that's, that's my goal more than anything. Because in that that type of depiction. There's so much emotion that you're probably trying to, to communicate yeah. right? that, that Joseph was feeling. I mean, talk about a difficult position to be in as yeah. a husband, let alone as a prophet. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's interesting. So, and you get opportunity to teach um, about the doctrines and, and then uh, paint yeah. the doctrines as well. Yeah, I do. It's, it's a fun, I get to teach. My role here at BYU is I'm what's called a teaching professor. So I'm assigned to teach the larger classes. Uh, I teach about six classes each semester of about 200 students each. So I get to teach over a thousand students every semester yeah. uh, here. So as you were growing up in your teenage years, perfecting your craft of, of painting and, and art, 
it was uh, teaching religion like a, always in the back of your mind as a backup plan or did it come just out of nowhere? No, it was never in my mind. It was a providential turn where I happened to speak in a sacrament meeting when I was in college. And a man came up to me afterward and said, what are you thinking of doing your, for, for your career? And I told him that I was either going to go into be a full-time painter or something into business. Uh, and he said, well, have you thought about teaching for the church? And he said, I think you'd be really good. You should think about it. And for whatever reason, I dismissed it, but the Lord didn't let me dismiss it. It stuck in my mind and, and dwelled on my heart and I couldn't shake it. And uh, finally went and talked to him and looked into the Seminary Institute training program and the rest was history for yeah. me. So. And so did the, the uh, shift really happen in graduate school when you moved towards these types of topics or? In terms of what kind of topics? As far as like teaching the gospel and, and, and that has that no, been your intent? Well, so I was hired right when I finished my bachelor's degree, I was hired by seminaries and institutes oh, okay. to teach full time for gotcha. them. So I started teaching, you know, in seminaries and institutes uh, were more generalists than specialists here at BYU were more specialists. Mm. So I taught in seminaries and institutes every year, you know, one year I'd teach the New Testament, then Book of Mormon, then Doctrine and Covenants, then Old Testament. But I always found myself leaning towards Joseph Smith and church history in my own personal interests and in church doctrine. So mm -hmm. those were some of the topics that I wrote on early on and, and how we teach about our doctrine and our history has always been important to me. So that's what my graduate work led me into was my graduate work is all in education, religious education. How do we teach people uh, religiously that is the most effective is what my dissertation really looked into. Nice. So there's, there's a lot of, a lot of good content needed in the, yeah, the realm yeah. in our culture, for sure. Anything else about your background that would be worth mentioning before we... Well, most important, my lovely wife. I've uh, been married for 21 years. Awesome. Her name's Cindy. We uh, uh, have known each other since we were 12 years old. Uh, we didn't date, but she did know me when I had a mullet. I'll put that on record. <laughs> nice. And she still agreed to marry me. So have the days of miracles ceased, I say nay. Nice. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we hit it off after my mission, and then uh, we've been fortunate enough to have seven children. So wow. we have right currently a daughter who's 20 here at BYU and a little guy named Truman who's two years old. Oh, wow. So we're, we're running the gamut. We've got college kids, high school kids, junior high kids, grade school kids, and kids still at home. Wow. I'm sure they're it's fun. <laughs> you need to be like on TLC on one of these uh, reality <laughs> shows because there's a lot there. Well, cool. So I wanted to really talk about the concept of doctrine. And just let me set up a scenario for you that I'm sure you're familiar with. A new bishop or a, someone serving as a bishop is up on the, the stand sitting in the sacrament meeting and suddenly the speaker or maybe somebody standing bear testimony states some things that aren't quote unquote doctrinal. Yeah. And there's sort of this, I don't know, I guess it, there's some verbiage in the handbook that, that addresses this, but obviously as the presiding authority, it is that authority's role to correct the false doctrine is, is the feeling. And yeah. so there's always this feeling of, oh, I have to stand up and awkwardly uh, correct this and maybe make the person feel bad. I don't mean to make you feel bad, but yeah. you know, and, or it's in a Sunday school class. And yeah. from my experience in leadership and others, I sometimes hesitate because I think, well, is it doctrine? You know, do I really understand the doctrine? Of course, the, yeah. the core foundations of a doctrine are, are easy to defend and articulate, but sometimes I'll hear things in Sunday school that I don't think is doctrine, but everybody's rolling with it because yeah. it's sort of culturally doctrinal. Yeah. So where do we start with understanding what doctrine is and what the leader's role in, in promoting and 
facilitating doctrinal teaching in a, in a church. Yeah. Well, like every discussion, I mean, words, man, words, you have to define words. Mm. And the very first thing to do is define what is doctrine Mm -hmm. and doctrine. The root word doctrine simply means a teaching, something that is taught. And some others might say something that is authoritatively taught. That's a slightly different definition of doctrine than sometimes we hear. And sometimes we hear that the, the doctrine is the eternal unchanging truths of the gospel, which that is doctrine, of course, but that's more called the doctrine of Christ or the core doctrines or what we might call the gospel, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy ghost, enduring in the faith. But everything that's authoritatively taught in the church is doctrine. So uh, that's the first place to start. And then the second place to start is what establishes official doctrine for the church. I think it'd be good for anybody to know both those, uh, both those things. So I kind of share with my students a model that defines different types of doctrine Mm -hmm. and another model that helps people understand what could be considered authoritative church teachings. Yeah. And maybe use some of those examples using that education week of where you, you stated just some, some common things that we think are doctrine or maybe not doctrine. Yeah. And you sort of quiz the audience on it. Yeah. You, you got me a few <laughs> times, that's for sure. And I thought, oh, I should, I should know this stuff, but I was wrong. Yeah. What are some examples of maybe where this... Well, some examples, let's say somebody's teaching a gospel doctrine class and they, and they read in Moses, for example, that uh, the Savior has created many worlds without number. By my son, I have created them. It says that in Moses 1. Well, let's say the teacher then says, well, we know that Jesus has created many worlds and he's the redeemer of many worlds. He saved more worlds than just this one. Is that true? I think uh, number one, that's the first question. Before we even say, is it doctrine? We should say, is it true? (laughs) Because (laughs) it's a good place to start. It's a good place to start (laughs) as a church of truth. Uh But secondly, you know, if somebody says the savior saved many worlds, if someone goes, yeah, yeah, he has. Well, how do you know that? How do you know that that's an authoritative church teaching? Or something that the church would stand behind. Is it? Yeah, I would say uh, that is, uh, <laughs> I'd say it's doctrine that, that, that Christ suffered for multiple worlds. Okay. And so then the next thing is, I think most of your listeners right now, if I throw that out, they would have a metric in their mind. They just ran through some sort of internal yeah, filter exactly, to try to determine whether something was doctrine. And what, what was your filter you just ran through? I have... I remember it being brought up in certain seminary institute classes. Oh, that's a right. dangerous filter right there. <laughs> but hey, it's having come through seminaries and institutes, <laughs> right, right. And I remember certain uh, quotes. It's and that's where we go to. I, I think I remember some place where there's this quote where a prophet mentioned that, okay. and so it must be. So does true. does if if a prophet says it, does that make it doctrine for the church? Well, since then I've learned that not necessarily. Okay. I mean, it has to be a. And that's, that's what I want to get at. And yeah. so there, there are metrics like this. Or another one that I threw out there was, and your listeners right now have probably heard this, that we should take the sacrament with our right hand. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all the listeners right here, if you're not driving, raise your right hand if you think that's church right. doctrine. And there, I said that was not church doctrine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there are many people who think it is. And there's many people who think it's not. And some people say it's cultural. Other people say, no, it's an ordinance. And you have to do ordinances the right way. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if somebody decided to baptize with an alternate method, we would stop them or, you know, if they didn't do it right. So, and you can find some statements from church leaders saying that you should take the sacrament with the right hand. However, it's not found in the handbook of instructions today in handbook one or two. 
And so it, it's left with, is that a church doctrine and how do we know? So that's mm-hmm. another example. Yeah. So how do we figure that out as leaders? I mean, is there, do we just stick with the, the handbooks and, but even the, the manual some, can sometimes well, leave hand, questions open. Particularly handbook two is excellent in teaching what I call core doctrine. Mm-hmm. The front part of handbook two is excellent. And, you know, preach my gospel has a lot of core basic doctrines, true to the faith. You know, these are all great resources the church has put out that have been reviewed by correlation and have been reviewed. I know that preach my gospel was reviewed by all the brethren Mm -hmm. and obviously handbook one and two as well. So those are some great places, but they're limited as well. So the model that I give. So if you want to know if something is an authorized church teaching, the best place is to look, first of all, in the standard works in the scriptures. We call them our standard works for a reason. Mm-hmm. They're our standard for doctrine, is what B.H. Roberts said. Or it's what President Nelson has said, where we measure the correctness of doctrine. So when somebody teaches something, can we find it in the harmonized scriptures? And I use the word harmonized intentionally, not just in the scriptures, but harmoniously. D. Todd Christofferson and Elder Packer have both said that scriptures authenticate each other. There's multiple scriptural witnesses of a truth. It's dangerous to try to establish a doctrine on one verse of scripture alone. So, and like take, for example, you know, John 118, no man hath seen God at any time. And the problem with that, you know, you could say, well, right there, there it is. You know, it's doctrine. Nobody's ever seen God. But if you take the harmonious scriptures, mm. there's multiple accounts of multiple people seeing God. And so it's kind of like in statistics where you're looking for, I don't want to bore you. I mentioned statistics and somebody just fell asleep. That's right. <laughs> but if you look at a scatter plot, like an XY scatter plot of some data, uh-huh. you're going to see data consistently grouped in an area. And then occasionally you'll see outliers. Uh-huh. And you look for the consistently grouped data in the scriptures. You look for what it's harmoniously teaching. And then you take the outliers individually and wrestle with them. Mm-hmm. And so, but some doctrines you may find a whole bunch of references towards that doctrine and some, yeah. maybe it's just one or two. Some one or two and some none. Like, for example, is it church doctrine that we have a mother in heaven? I would say definitely yeah, so. Say and so. yet you cannot find any explicit mm. mentions of mother in heaven in scripture. Right. So the second thing to look at is, can we find the second most, and I don't want to pitch them against each other. It's not like scriptures are the most authoritative and then this is second most, but section 107 verse 27 of the Doctrine and Covenants says that, every decision made by the prophets should be a unanimous voice. And if you pay attention, you will listen to the prophets, even some of the recent changes on ministering and the two hour church schedule, they will explicitly say we are united on this decision Mm -hmm. because 107 says that they should be united. And if they're united, their decisions have power and validity is what those are the two words that stand out to me in section 107. Mm -hmm. So I look for united statements from the first presidency and the quorum of the 12. It's the, it's the prophet with his counselors and the 12. Their job is to establish doctrine for the church. That's what President Hinckley said. So, you know, take something like the family proclamation to the world or take the 1909 statement that was repeated in 1926. And that was also published in the Ensign in 2002. They all say we have a mother in heaven. Mm-hmm. Family proclamation says we're the children of heavenly parents. So I can use that to say united voice of the first presidency on 12 power and validity. We have a mother in heaven. Mm-hmm. So that's the second thing I look for is unanimous statements. Yeah. Love that. Third thing to look at. Sometimes there's not like a unanimous declaration, like a letter from the first presidency, but sometimes there are cohesive statements from the 
church leaders acting in their official capacity. These are, this is where general conference talks comes in or an article in the Enzyme by a church leader or something in a worldwide leadership training broadcast or, so what you look for is, can I find a cumulative statements of the brethren and the sisters, the general relief society president, young women's president, general primary presidency, people acting in their official capacity as church leaders teaching this church doctrine. And you start to see things that are cohesively taught by them. So maybe there's not a signed document or a signed United Statement, but you can find consistent teachings from church leaders on the subject. And then the fourth thing I look at is, can I find it in official church publications? Is it on LDS.org, Mormon.org, Joseph Smith Papers, History.LDS.org, any church website that has been reviewed by what's known as correlation Mm -hmm. or the curriculum departments who try to keep an eye to make sure that the doctrine of the church, its teachings stay consistent and cohesive. Yeah. So if I can find it in church statements, church manuals, church websites that have been reviewed and approved, then you're on pretty good ground as well. So those are kind of the four areas I look for. So quickly review those. First one is is scriptural. So harmonized scriptures. Second is united statements by the first presidency and or the twelve. Third is cumulative teachings of church officers acting in their official capacity. Then fourth one is, can I find it in church-reviewed materials that have been published? Awesome. And you also mentioned in your presentation, Education Week, that it's not a black or white thing. Like there's maybe different levels of doctrine, like yeah. the core doctrine. And what, what are so the other another, another one is, so that was what I call, and I, I need to make sure I give a shout out to my friends, Doctors Michael McKay and Garrett Dirkmott. Oh, okay. They're the ones who wrote this paper with me and that helped develop some of these models. So I want to be sure to give them credit. Awesome. So we also, that's called sources of doctrine, the first one, sources that established authoritative teachings in the church. The second thing is types of doctrine. And there are different types of doctrine. So in 2007, I would highly recommend every church leader who listens to this pulls up a statement called Approaching Mormon Doctrine. The LDS newsroom put it out in 2007 when Mitt Romney ran for president. And it's really important for a number of reasons because, you know, different commentators were out there saying, Hey, do you know Mitt Romney's a Mormon? Well, do you know that Mormons believe? And they would find one one off statement by someone in the Journal of Discourses, you know. Yeah, the white horse prophecy yeah, is when they come to mind. Yeah. Right? So the church came out and said, <laughs> Let's let's clarify what is church doctrine. And by the way, with that, one of the back to the sources of doctrine. You know, I mentioned Harmonized Scriptures, United Voice, Cumulative Teachings. They said this important statement, a single statement made by a single leader on a single occasion often represents a well-considered opinion, but is not meant to be binding doctrine upon all church members. Mm -hmm. That's That's important. That's huge because Sometimes people will, they'll play the, I want, don't want to be too light with this, but they'll be like, well, did you know that Phil in general authority name here said this as though that right one there. statement establishes church doctrine forevermore. Right. It doesn't. Yeah. And then someone will say, well, I, I see your, you know, James E. Talmadge and I'll raise you a Bruce R. McConkie. <laughs> and, and, and they'll want to lay down an opposite statement. <laughs> Neither of those establish doctrine for the church. Mm-hmm. They may very well be true or they may not be. They may be the person's opinion. That's why we look for those authoritative sources of doctrine. So, but with that same statement, they also said, they hinted that there's different types of doctrine. Some in that statement, they say some are more important than others. For example, the atonement of Jesus Christ is much more important 
than the location of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> yeah. And they said some could be considered core doctrines. And so it opens up this idea that there are different types of doctrines in the church. And the model that we developed was the center are called core doctrines. These are the unchanging fundamental truths of salvation. This is, we have a loving father in heaven. His son, Jesus Christ is our redeemer. There's no way to salvation, but through faith and repentance and covenants with him endure to the end, you know, marriage is eternal. This, you know, the resurrection, these core basic parts of the gospel. Uh, Sometimes what we would just call the gospel of Christ. Yeah. But then there's more supportive doctrines. That's the second ring is supportive doctrines. Supportive doctrines might not be necessary for salvation, but they help us understand core doctrines better. So core, Jesus atoned for our sins. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. A supportive doctrine. Well, he grew up in Nazareth. He healed the sick. He bled from every poor in the garden. He suffered in the garden and on the cross. He felt all of our pains. I'm not sure I need to know that stuff to be saved. Mm-hmm. You know, our missionaries don't go out and say, do you believe that Jesus bled from every single poor? And if you don't say yes, we won't baptize you. They right. say, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? And so like doctrines, there's core doctrines like atonement and Jesus is the savior, but then there's supportive doctrines like him bleeding from every poor. Or let me give you another one that in the millennial reign, there will be a thousand years of peace or that Christ will come down and touch the Mount of Olives and it will split in two. That's not a core essential doctrine of salvation, but it helps us understand the core doctrine of Christ as King better. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it doesn't mean that it's maybe isn't exactly going to transpire like that. Or I mean, there's some ambiguity in there. Yeah, there is. There is. Uh, And that's okay. And sometimes we want to state like, well, you know, it's doctrine that, you know, Christ bled for every poor and, you know, consider that yeah. or that Christ actually suffered in, you know, in the garden and, and on, on the, the cross. cross. And you're like, well, you know, there's been certain leaders that have said that and yeah. we look for a cohesive voice. And I'm not sure you have to know that to be saved or yeah. believe that you could have a differing opinion and you're still a faithful Mormon. Right. And, and I think that's the important um, thing is that one member could have an opinion differently or say, I yeah. don't necessarily believe that. That doesn't mean that they don't believe in the doctrine of the church especially, or yeah. the core doctrine. Yeah, the core doctrine yeah. of salvation. Right. And it doesn't mean they don't believe in living prophets either, particularly if the doctrine hasn't been settled. Mm-hmm. Particularly, and one of the examples I gave was some, you know, take the concept of eternal progression in the next life. Can people progress from telestial to terrestrial to celestial? There are some of the brethren who have adamantly said no to that subject. Mm-hmm. There have been other of the brethren who have said yes. For every quote that says no, there's an equal number of quotes that say yes, that it's a possibility. And so right now your leader, you know, th- those who are listening to this podcast might go, oh, I believe that there is. And others might say, no way. Well, the answer is the church has came out in 1965 and said, we have no declarative doctrine on this point. Mm-hmm. Some have said yes, some have said no. And you're free to believe what you want on that subject. It doesn't mean you're not faithful to the church's doctrines. Uh, nor does it mean you're not faithful to the church leaders and sustaining them as prophets, seers, and revelators. Yeah. Uh, that's an important concept. And this, uh, we're touching on the ambiguity, which I want to dive into, but maybe let's finish okay, the, so, the third. So you have three, core right? doctrines, you have supportive doctrines, and supportive doctrines elaborate on the core. The third ring that we give is called policy doctrines. And we do call them doctrines, by the way. And the reason why, and some people could disagree with that, and that's fine. 
But the reason why I like to call them policy doctrines is because they're authoritative teachings, which is what the word doctrine means. So for example, the word of wisdom, the word of wisdom has not been taught in every dispensation. Yeah. It has taken many shifts and turns in our dispensation. It took nearly a hundred years for it to become a binding commandment on temple going Latter-day Saints, by the way. Hmm. It wasn't until Heber J. Grant's ministry in the 1920s and 30s that that really became solidified. But today you can't even get baptized unless you are willing to live the word of wisdom. You definitely can't have a temple recommend. And so it, it has become a binding teaching, but it, a policy doctrine is a timely teaching that is more centered towards application because God foresaw evils and designs that would exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. So he gives us this word of wisdom. It's unique to our time, but it's still authoritative and it's still binding. Similarly, like, and the reason why I want to maybe emphasize that, that people, sometimes people want to dismiss policies. Oh, that, and they, yeah. the phrase I use is they want to call it mere policy. Oh, that's, that's just a policy. Mm-hmm. It's not an eternal doctrine. It's still a binding doctrine that can affect salvation. So if you and I lived in Abraham's time, every male would have to be circumcised to be part of the covenant. Well, circumcision was done away with, you know, during New Testament times with Peter and the, the Jerusalem council. That doesn't mean that uh, I couldn't say to Abraham, oh, Abraham, this is just a policy. Yeah. You just I don't, thought this up yourself. I don't have to do this. And yeah. it even says, I think it's in off the top of my head, Genesis 17, that if you won't be circumcised, you are not part of the covenant. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just a mere policy. It was a covenant affecting timely cultural application of truths. Yeah. And those can happen all the time. And the prophets, seers, and revelators have the, that authority to yeah. do that. And it's becoming more of almost like a buzzword of, uh, or a buzz phrase of like, well, you know, this difference between doctrine and policy and, and they do not overlap. Right? I don't like that person. Yeah. And just me no, speaking I, I, personally. I, I and that, that's why I don't like it is because people want to be dismissive of binding church policies mm-hmm. that have been authoritatively put in place by key holding prophets who have the authority to do so. Yeah. You can't dismiss what key holding prophets establish as standards for the church. Yeah. And I love the, this model that you create because it's almost like the policy doctrines push us towards the supportive doctrine, which, push which pushes us towards, towards the, the core doctrine. Yeah. And so if we dismiss the, those policy doctrines as, oh, yeah. that's just what this prophet feels is important. Yeah. And so let's give it a decade and I'm sure this will change. Yeah. But then we, we sort of remove ourselves from this journey to the core doctrine. But even if it does change, I want to just touch on that for a moment, because that's a big thing. Well, what if this changes? Because yeah, doctrine doesn't change. Because right? doctrine never changes. Yeah. Doctrine does change. If you're using doctrine as authoritative teaching. Now, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not change. Right. But if you're using doctrine as authoritative teachings, it does change. It changes as new revelations come that give us further light and knowledge on a subject. If I had talked to Joseph Smith in 1820 and asked him if God had a body of flesh and bone, I'm not sure he'd say yes. Hmm. Or if I had asked Joseph in 1830, do we have a mother in heaven? I'm not sure he would have said yes. But by Nauvoo, Joseph is very clear that because he's received further revelation, God has a body and we have a mother in heaven. Yeah. If I had asked Joseph in 1830 when the church was organized, is there eternal marriage? I'm not sure what he would have said. But by the mid 1830s, there's evidence that Joseph is starting to understand that marriage is meant to be eternal. So doctrine can change as we get new light and knowledge. Like the example I give is be hard for your viewers to just imagine somebody holding up an object and saying, what is this? Well, they're looking at it from one perspective and what they're describing is true. But then as that object turns in space, if it's a three-dimensional object, they're going to see other sides and they're going to see underneath and they're going to see on top. 
And as they see those new things, doctrine will be amplified and augmented and clarified. But secondly, doctrine will change because policies change, because cultural applications change, such as the word of wisdom. But the reason why I want to get back to it, it's so important that people don't say, well, this is just going to change because you can never get ahead of profits. If you try to get ahead of profits, you're not in a good position. Yeah. Because if there's one thing I believe and that I think scripture authenticates is that God honors his prophets. So take the story of Korah and Dathan in the Old Testament. They come to Moses and they're Levites and they say, we want to have the high priesthood also like you and Aaron. God confirms that it should be Moses and Aaron that have it, not the Levites. And Korah says something interesting. He says, well, aren't we all holy? Aren't we all just as good as you? And shouldn't we also have the privilege of a high priesthood? And the answer was, yes, they are just as good. They're just as holy. They're just as capable. But that wasn't what the Lord revealed or approved or that his prophets were giving at that time. And so because they tried to circumvent the prophets, the earth opened up and swallowed them whole. Hmm. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because, you know, a dispensation later, other tribes of Israel would get the priesthood. You know, I can picture Korah in the spirit world going, see, I was right. (laughs) He was right, but his timing was wrong and his approach was wrong. So I would just have everybody just ponder on that, that. Doctrine will yet change in the future. And we believe in a living church and what is orthodox today might be heterodox tomorrow. And what might be considered heresy or heterodox today might become orthodox tomorrow. That's what happens in religions of revelation, but you can't ever get ahead of the revelators. Yeah. And and I love that concept of, you know, from a leadership perspective, it's not just about like, oh, making sure you raise your hand and correcting something that's said that's maybe a supportive or that's not a supportive doctrine or yeah. policy doctrine, but be mindful of those individuals. Maybe there's some individuals that are sort of feeling like they're they're trying to get ahead of the prophets yeah. of saying like, well, I'm not going to do that or I, I know where we're headed, so yeah. I'm just going to wait this out. But to really recognize that and maybe have that dialogue with them of saying, well, let's let's talk about what yeah. doctrine is. And, and though it's a policy. Yeah we should still embrace it as a binding yeah. doctrine. Yeah. Right? And I love when Brigham Young also like take the example of Brigham Young, when the revelation on section 76 came out of the three degrees of heaven, Brigham Young said, I could not understand it. He called it a great trial to him hmm. because it was so contrary to his traditions. But then Brigham Young said, I said to myself, do not reject it. Wait a little. And he waited a little. And then until the Lord taught him and helped him understand it. It's okay for your faithful members of your ward to say, I don't understand this. I don't even agree with this. I don't know why this is the case. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You can say that, but just don't, don't try to get ahead of the revelators. Don't try to undercut the revelators. Don't try to oppose them. Uh, that's not how the kingdom functions. Mm-hmm. So, right. yeah. And Elder Oak said that as much. Right. We, we so. sometimes want to approach the kingdom of God as a, as a democracy, as, a democracy. as we approach, you know, yeah, our political. Demo- yeah. yeah. And uh, doesn't sway things. So up. then the fourth ring, sorry, oh, I, there's I, a fourth I, ring. I forgot about there. the fourth ring. Okay. The fourth ring goes into what we just call esoteric doctrine. Esoteric is a big fancy word for it's only partially known or it's obscured or it's ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, like, is there kingdom progression in the next life? That's an esoteric doctrine. What role does mother in heaven play in our salvation? That's esoteric. We don't know what's on the sealed portion of the book of Mormon. That's esoteric. Is Jesus married? That's esoteric. You know, surely somebody knows those answers, Mm -hmm. 
but they're not openly and declaratively revealed in the church. They're open for discussion and interpretation. Yeah, so, but there's nothing binding about them. But there's though. nothing binding about them. Yeah. So I want to kind of, as we talk about this concept of, of policy and doctrine, I think like we mentioned, this is sort of a hot topic. I mean, I guess it's a hot topic in every generation, but yeah. it's something you taught me about Doctrine and Covenants 128 verse 9 about the role of receiving revelation, because I hear some people say, as far as policy doctrines, saying that I don't think that was received through revelation, Yeah. right? How would you respond to that? Well, if it's okay, I'll pull out the, yeah. the scripture. Section 128 verse 9 teaches a really interesting concept. I call it the bold doctrine. And Joseph, speaking of the sealing power, says this. It may be seem, verse 9, it may seem to some to be a very bold doctrine that we talk of, a power which records or binds on earth and binds in heaven. Nevertheless, in all ages of the world, whenever the Lord has given a dispensation of the priesthood to any man by actual revelation or any set of men, this power has always been given. Now here's the lesson. Hence, whatsoever those men did in authority in the name of the Lord and did it truly and faithfully and kept a proper and faithful record of the same, it became a law on earth and in heaven and could not be annulled. And then Joseph says, this is a faithful saying, who can hear it? It's almost like he's like, do you get what I'm saying here? (laughs) Yeah, I love that. He's saying that when prophets who hold sealing keys, when they act in their authority in the name of the Lord, truly and faithfully, and they make a record of it, it becomes a law on earth and in heaven. And the Lord honors that decision. And so it might not have come down as a voice of God from on high or an angel declaring it or revealing it. But if the brethren acting in their prophetic keys as the Lord's agents, meaning his representatives, if they, with their united voice and keys make a decision, it becomes a law on earth and in heaven. Yeah. And that's a faithful saying who can hear it. This yeah. may be a very bold doctrine. We talk. Of. Yeah. And that's such a powerful phrase. But, and some right now are like, well, but what if, what if, yeah. Remember, Also, like in, I think it's in the book of Helaman, the Lord said to Nephi that he was giving him the sealing power because he knew that he would not ask anything that was contrary to his will, to God's will. And those are the kind of revelators that we've got. Yeah. And I was just going to reference that Nephi in the book of Helaman is such a great example of this, that he was given, you know, that's a great example of given the keys, right? Yeah. And and I think the doctrine of keys is so important to understand because it's not just an authority it's an authority to direct, yeah. right? And yeah. that gives a lot of autonomy to that leader, which yeah, that does. Which, from a you know a bishop's point of view, sometimes it's you know you're just thinking, am I doing the right thing? Is is the Lord you know sanctified every direction I'm giving? But to me, it takes off so much pressure of being like, listen, we called you. You're a good guy. You have good common sense. You have the yeah. keys. Now move forward. Yeah, right? so, you know there are times on a general level and a and a personal and local level where the Lord gives clear revelation. But there's also times when the Lord says, I respect your decision and will honor what you decide. So long as you do it truly and faithfully in your authority and in the name of the Lord. Yeah. And you use this example in your uh, education week address of as far as it's very typical to be in a bishopric meeting and you need a second Sunday nursery leader every other November. You know, it's like (laughs) you need this calling. Okay, who do we got? And and a lot of members, we sort of romanticize about this idea of that you know, the angel, an angel descended upon my bishop and told him that this is exactly where I need to serve at this time. When in reality, it's sort of like, you know, we're just, we're trying to just move this ward forward and, yeah. and we think you'd yeah. be a good 
position here. And that doesn't mean that revelation wasn't received. It's that revelation was created by the bishop directing it. Yeah. Right. The concept of an agent, sometimes in the church, we say agency and we think all oh, the power to choose. If I could give an alternate definition, it also means the power to represent. Mm. If you or I became movie stars, we would likely have an agent. If we were professional athletes, would have an agent. Uh, if we were a musician, mm -hmm. we would hire an agent. And what our agent does is we let our agent know our general will. And then the agent goes out and makes specific decisions mm -hmm. and represents us. And then comes back to us and says, this is what I decided. Is this okay? Mm -hmm. And they're vested with power to represent. And the Lord has agents on this earth on every level, on small levels, in a family, in a ward, and he has agents on the general level of the church yeah. as well. And I think there's several examples of, you know, an issue or a problem that uh, maybe a, a bishop or at least a president is really wrestling with and is taking it to the Lord or the temple and really desiring that revelation. And there's others that are, they sort of just move forward and make a decision and that's yeah. still sanctioned, right? Yeah. yeah. And if it's wrong, the Lord will let us know. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk about, you know, going to the ambiguity of doctrine. Cause let, let's like pivot back to sort of where we started in the Sunday school class. There's sort of this feeling that we have to respect every doctrine of this level as if it's a core doctrine. And so uh -huh. I, sometimes people think, well, I would make a comment, but I don't know if that's doctrine. Right. Yeah. But if we look at it as like, well, that's a supportive doctrine or a policy doctrine. And let's just talk about it. How do you see it? Right. Or as far as advancing from one kingdom to another, I, I really don't think that does happen. And somebody yeah. else may say, well, I, I think it does. And that type of scenario, we sort of avoid as a Sunday school presidency, like we don't want that to happen because people feel uncomfortable and, and uh, you know, who knows which is doctrine. And so let's just avoid that altogether, which then waters down the teaching in general, because yeah. we just, then we stick with, well, what is faith? And yeah. what does it mean for you to pray? Does anybody have an experience where they prayed? Right. Uh -huh. And we don't get a deeper discussion. So what do we need to understand about the ambiguity in the doctrinal model that will help us maybe facilitate a better discussion and deeper discovery at church? Yeah. Well, I would say in the doctrinal model, first of all, if it is a core doctrine or a supportive doctrine or a policy doctrine, if it's clear where the church is, you know, if you have cumulative teachings of the brethren, United Statements or cohesive scriptures, then we have a responsibility in our church classes to teach those things and to uphold those as the church's doctrine. The esoteric level, the ambiguous level is where we should be a little more open to discussion. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people are like, well, I don't, I don't want to talk about those things. We just need to stick to the core. And that's your decision as a teacher or a leader. And that's great. And, and they may use a phrase like, we got to be really careful here yeah. that we, we don't venture off somewhere. Yeah. In reality, we're, we can still be in the world of doctrine and sort of yeah. explore, right? Well, yeah, especially if it's ambiguous, right. if it's not defined. And frankly, sometimes in the church, we have a hard time with ambiguity. We, ha we have a hard time with things that aren't clearly defined or clearly known. So we like to avoid them. Mm -hmm. But sometimes it's, it's in the very wrestling with ambiguous concepts that clarity does come. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So I mean, what would you do if you were a Sunday school president and working with creating a, a more fruitful experience in gospel doctrine? how would you manage that or instruct a, a teacher to find that balance of doctrine? And so that it's a richer experience. Well, one of the first things you have to do is you have to say, I call it making a split decision. And by split decision, it means you write down or you make sure you teach what's known on the subject and declared. Mm -hmm. What should we proclaim and sustain? 
and what's unknown and undeclared on the subject. And when you split it that way, then you can say, okay, this is what is declared and known through revelation or through prophetic teachings. And these are the things that are unknown and undeclared. The stuff that is known, we should emphasize that people proclaim them and sustain them. And then the things that are unknown, be free to talk about them. So Mm -hmm. whatever the subject it is, if that comes up, then let people talk. You know, let's, let's say that, you know, we're studying the Old Testament and somebody has something come up about the theory of evolution Mm -hmm. in a class. Well, there might be some members of the church who really quick want to say evolution's false, evolution's of the devil. And other people want to come out and say, no, 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 no. Evolution is, you know, it's scientific, it's proven, it's factual by every open-minded person. And as though you have to pick one or the other and you don't. And so if I were approaching teaching the creation, for example, I would say, okay, you know, what is known? Well, we know that the Lord Jesus is the creator of this world. We know that God oversaw the creation. We know that men and women are created in their similitude, in the similitude of God. We know, you know, that according to Moses, it started with uh, lower order forms. I mean, it's interesting that the creation of the world goes from water to land, to swimming things, to creeping things, to birds, uh-huh. to animals, then to people. Uh-huh. I think Darwin would say, yeah, that follows my model. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and so, okay, so this is what's known. This was the order of creation. So that's what the church proclaims. And, and then... And then say, all right, we've had some brethren say that evolution's false. We've had others who have been open to it. The church came out in 1909 and it was reaffirmed in 1926 and reprinted in 2002 that the church has no position on evolution other than that God, that man can evolve into a God. They use that play on words, (laughs) but they say, let how man came to be, be pursued by science. And so then you could open it up to maybe say, all right, then if that's what's known and this is what the church proclaims, then how can we balance some of these teachings and still sustain it, but still be open to what science is teaching and revealing through their methods, through the scientific method and be open to a discussion that way and not just try to shut everything down. If somebody says, I think evolution's true. And someone says, I think it's false. And you're like, I don't want to have this discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Cause I think it's more like managing the opinions in the room. And so I, I wonder if, would it be beneficial for, a gospel doctor teacher to sort of identify these levels of doctrine and say, you know, yeah, that is a core doctrine. Well, that said, you know, that's a yeah, supportive, a supportive doctrine. doctrine. And, yeah, and this, it, is, this is a policy doctrine. This is an unknown or an esoteric or only partially revealed. I think yeah. it's helpful. And then also to say, how do we know it? Yeah. How do I know this is a doctrine? Is this coming out of the harmonized scriptures, United Statements, cumulative teachings or church manuals? Yeah. Cause I, I've done a lot of writing and brought a lot of discourse to this as far as like, conflict in, in Sunday school class. There, yeah. There's some that feels like, well, I, I can't check off all these that I believe all these things. And so I don't feel like I can go to the gospel doctrine and share my perspective because I just get shut down, yeah. you know, yeah. whether directly or passive aggressively. Uh-huh. And so the gospel doctrine has to manage that as far as how can we hear maybe some alternative supportive doctrines or an alternative perspective of, of supportive doctrines yeah. without like, offending this person or having the person raise their hand and say, well, we got to be careful here that we don't talk about false doctrine. You know, uh-huh. uses these, these trump cards. These, like, these <laughs> trump cards. Yeah, yeah. This, well, I mean, that's an art. It really right. is. And uh, this is where it's a blessing and a curse to have a lay ministry. Right. Amen. <laughs> because we're not trained professionals on yeah. this. If you're a trained discussion facilitator, 
you might be do a little bit better. But everybody can begin by number one, respecting everybody's opinion. Follow what Section eighty eight says that you know let let every person speak. And Joseph Smith one time even said, I think it's in the Council of Fifty Minutes. I'd have to go check, but I'm going to paraphrase him. He basically said, "We have to agree to disagree longer." Mm. And he said, sometimes we try to come to agreement too quickly because we're trying to just diffuse any tension or weirdness. That's not his words. That this is kind of maybe the psychology behind it. We don't like there to be uncomfortable disagreement nuance. And Joseph is saying, we need to disagree longer and allow the disagreement to take place because it's in the very nature of the disagreement that we come to clarity on certain subjects. Yeah. So I would say number one, don't think that if there's disagreement on the subject that you're doing wrong or that anybody in your ward or your Sunday school is like being unfaithful. Now, those are frankly judgmental positions to take unless they are directly trying to oppose and undermine established core fundamental teachings of the church. Then we do have a responsibility to say, no, that this is very clear. You know, yeah. if somebody comes out and says, I just don't think that Jesus is the Christ. Well, you better say something about that. Yeah. Uh, that's right. pretty established. Yeah. yeah. But if it's not, let's open, let people discuss and be okay with it. And it, try to establish a tone where we're open to people's ideas. We're not going to shoot people down. We're not going to criticize. And then if people disagree with you, it doesn't mean that anybody's offending you. Let's not take offense so quickly. I've heard people say before, like, I don't say anything in gospel doctrine because nobody listens to me. Mm. What they mean by that is nobody agrees with me. Yeah. Listening to you and agreeing with you are two separate things. People can listen to you and I all day long. That doesn't mean they have to agree with us. People might be listening to this podcast and not agree with me. And I'm, I'm totally fine with that. Right. And we need to be more okay with that yeah. and, and say, well, thanks for hearing me, even if you don't agree with me. Yeah. Anything else as far as ambiguity in doctrine that would be worth mentioning? or um, Just with, you need to embrace ambiguity. Uh, there's less that's known than that's unknown. You know, there's just, mm -hmm. we have answers. I do believe that in the restoration. That's one of the reasons why I love it. Mm -hmm. We do have answers that others don't, but there's still so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's just still so much that's unclear. And I think my take on it is I think God wants it that way. If I can use an art analogy. Yeah. I was with an artist, more of an abstract artist who does installation art. And he was telling us that he did a, this installation piece of art. And somebody said to him, you need to tell us what it means. You need to put up like a placard next to it, explaining it so I can get it. <laughs> and he said, no, I refuse to do that. He said, that would be the worst thing for me to do. I want you to wrestle with it. Yeah. I want you to have to engage with it. I want you to have to think it through and analyze it. And he said, I'll drop hints but I'm not going to explain the whole thing, you know, spoken like a true artist yeah. so that you can come to your own conclusions. And he said, and if you're not willing to put in the price to wrestle with it and to engage with it, and you're going to walk onto another piece of art, then that's your call. And I think God operates kind of like an abstract artist. Sometimes if God wanted to make everything extremely clear, he could make it really easy. He could manifest himself every Sunday afternoon at noon and say hi to everybody and yell, you know, from the rooftops that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is his authorized restored church and that we should all keep the commandments. But he doesn't do that. Yeah. He places hints. He places drops. He puts the sculpture out there or the abstract art 
And then he wants to see if you and I will wrestle and engage with it. And it's more unknown and undeclared than it is known and declared. And as we wrestle with things, the ambiguous, the unknown, we hope that we come to more clarity. Yeah. I love that. The way to think of that, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe as you, you know, speaking from a teaching perspective in churches, as students leave that classroom, we want them to have some answers and maybe some things we learn, but maybe a deeper desire to go wrestle with some of this information that they've, they've learned, not in a negative way or a doubtful way, but to yeah. really dig in yeah. and find a deeper understanding. Yeah. God needs seekers. Yeah. Uh, he wants people who are willing to seek and ye shall find, ask, knock. And that requires things that aren't exactly clear. So nice. I got one more question for you, but uh, before you do that, if people want to learn more about you, about your art of, uh, I know you're, you, you do a good Instagram, you're a good Instagram. Yeah. Follow, you so. can follow me on Instagram at brother Anthony sweat, or I have a website, Anthony com, where you can see some of my books and paintings and yeah. Awesome. All right. The last question I have for you is, and, I typically ask leaders as I interview them, like, what has being a leader taught you about being a follower of Jesus Christ? But I'm curious, like, as you have painted leaders and illustrated leaders and, and found these stories, what is painting leaders? How has that influenced you as a follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, I've, I've mainly taught, sorry, I've mainly painted Joseph Smith, Emma Smith early. I haven't painted any contemporary church leaders. So I could maybe speak of Joseph and Emma and Oliver Cowdery and maybe some of those early church leaders. You know, what I've discovered, I just did a painting of Joseph Smith called uh, The Rough Stone. Mm. And sometimes in paintings of Joseph Smith, we like to polish him. We like, you know, using a metaphor, we like his skin to be flawless. Every brush stroke smoothed over, covering blemishes. In my study of Joseph Smith as a scholar, he is a colorful man. He's a mortal man and he's an inspired man. He's a revelatory man. I believe with my whole soul, he's a prophet, but I also know he's a man. And um, so I did this painting of Joseph. I did it with my palette knife. It's really thick paint. It's really rough and it's multicolored. It's deliberate like blues and greens and yellows and pinks and, and whites and, and reds all mixed together that forms this portrait of Joseph. And so in painting things like that, I think my takeaway of it is I'm grateful that, that Joseph was a, a pro- prophet, but I'm also grateful that he was a man because in seeing his humanity, seeing Joseph's humanity doesn't lessen my faith in his prophetic mission. It actually increases it. And what it teaches me is that it actually makes me glad because I know my weaknesses and I know my own humanity and my shortcomings. And I'm sure every person listening to this knows their <laughs> own as well. Yeah. And if we have this false dichotomy that God either works through flawless people or he doesn't work at all, to quote the scholar Adam Miller, who, he's the one who said that, that's a false dichotomy. God will work through flawed people who are doing their best to seek to follow him. I've seen that in Joseph and Emma and Oliver and other early church figures. I see that in people today. I see it in myself. I'm grateful God's willing to work with me in my weakness to hopefully try to bring to pass his grace. That concludes my interview with Professor Anthony Sweat. I just so much enjoy speaking with him and I appreciate the model he puts together and the way he he compartmentalizes what doctrine is and how not all doctrine is necessarily equal. Not all doctrine is core doctrine. Not all doctrine is a policy doctrine, right? 
And that understanding between what doctrine is, what policy is, and that they're not separate. There's a, gr a great overlapping there that is still binding, even though it may be known as policy. It can still be policy doctrine. I would ask that you might uh, forward this episode on to another leader that you know, whether it's your bishop, your Sunday school president, your Relief Society president, anybody you know, maybe even just a close friend who you know is in a leadership role, forward this episode on to them and share your thoughts of why you enjoyed it and encourage them to listen. That's a great way of how you can help leading saints grow and impact the lives of more leaders. And that concludes this throwback episode of the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to access the three most popular sessions of the Liberating Saints Library. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.